Drawer was the first and only guest that I, that I had to cancel on because I f***ed up my schedule. Oh, we canceled on you? I did. When I, went, when I went to Shame. Phoenix. No, but also it was ages in advance anyway. No, but, li but, listen, like a... but listen to this. You took it very seriously. No, because I, 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 I really felt really badly. Yeah. Uh, next week, Josh and I are going to be in Tampa. Uh -huh. And I got my brain twisted, and I thought that I was gonna have to cancel on you again because I thought you were next week, and I was like, "Oh my god!" We would have taken you to Tampa with us. Sounds so good. I started DMing you. I was gonna like send you like a DoorDash like card to like I'm like I'm buying you dinner, oh. and then Nicole's like, "You idiot! That's <clears throat> next week." Hey, I didn't call you an idiot. I mean, but I was like, "What are yeah, you talking yeah. about?" She implied. Yeah. Yeah. No, but she it was it was it was worthy. I am I am I am calendar challenged. You are. Even though like it should be fairly. Uh, how did you end up in Port Washington? Let's hear the story. Because you don't have a Port Washington okay, accent. No. <laughs> How'd you end up on Long Island? Let's so, start there. So I grew up across the bay in Israel. Yeah. Throw these on. And uh, right right across the bay in Israel. Right. Yes. Okay. And then. What part of Israel are you from? Netanya. Okay. It's the Where, capital I don't know. of Israel. Is, no, I'm joking. Where is that? It's on the coast, the Mediterranean. It's kind of it's on the Med. Okay. 15 minutes north of Tel Aviv. It's Tel Aviv, basically, but okay. it's like a little chiller. Okay. It's like how the Port Washington of, of Israel. How did, all right, so how did, you end up, how did you end up in the United States and when? So I came here. I left Israel 22 years ago. So I've mm -hmm. lived in China for 10 years. Oh, wow. I lived in London. I went to grad school there. I went to college in Australia before that. And eight years ago, I landed here kind of by accident. I had a startup that... Was kind of going hot here for five minutes. Okay, was uh, it WeWork? No. Okay. <laughs> that, that was my. That was the other Israeli guy. Okay. Do you know him? And uh, I, I've met him. Yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Does anyone really know? I don't. Does know. anyone really know him? He's impressive. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I think he is. He's a. I mean, he's a remarkable guy. He's yeah. very impressive. Uh, All right. So you had a startup. You you got to New York. Yeah. So I came here for a few weeks. Yeah. And uh, I kind of stayed for a little longer. Then I met my future wife. No, well, that will do it. Jewish girl from Long Island. There you go. Then I lived in Manhattan. She convinced me to move to Brooklyn. And then during COVID, she dragged me to Dix Hills for a few weeks because that's where she grew up. And okay. then... No disrespect. So, yeah, it's, but, suburban yeah, life wasn't yeah. growing on me. But Dix at least Hills, I east could... or west, this matters. Do you know which high school? Ah, uh, east, Okay. I think. All right. Did you ever go to Blackstone while you were out there? One of my favorite I didn't go houses. anywhere because when I was there, you oh, couldn't COVID. go. It was... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Plus, where could you go? There's no sidewalks. Nowhere. There's nothing. Right. So... And then we kind of tried to find a place. Like, I wanted to just go back to the city. She really wanted us to buy a house already. Uh, we looked at houses. They trick you. The, the Jewish girls from Long Island, oh, they trick course. you. When you meet them, they live in Murray Hill. They live exactly, in Manhattan. Exactly, yeah. And you think it's going to be all Broadway shows for the rest of your life. But what they really want is to be as close to their mom as possible. That's exactly what happened. I'll tell you. I could tell you. that and, uh, I could have predicted all of this. If I knew you, I didn't know you then. If only, I could have told you where this I was going. And then we kind of looked for houses near Dix Hills, and yeah. at some point I said, "Listen, like uh, I, I just can't. I'll, I'll never, I'll never live like this." Yeah, like and, those animals. Then, I agree. Yeah. Shout to Dix Hills, all our listeners, Dix Hills. All right, so yeah. why Port Washington? I love Port Washington. It's no, one so of my it favorite came areas. Up, frankly, we just went back to looking for places to buy in, in Brooklyn, uh, but my wife was still looking for stuff on her own. Yeah. And then she sent me a listing in Port Washington. I've never been there. I just looked at the listing, yeah. and I told her, yeah, buy this house. I don't even need to see it's it. It's beautiful, though. So, it's on the North Shore. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's like living in Queens, basically. I mean, I 30, okay. 30 minutes to Manhattan by yeah. train. I can walk to the beach, walk to the train, walk to a sushi. You got two movie theaters there. Not that I think that, I don't think they're running. Maybe I mean, the Manhattan one maybe is running. <laughs> and uh, right. the Port Washington one's closed. Good train. Uh, you have a good train line. Great train. It starts train. in Port Washington, so you never yeah. have to fight for a seat. And you can fall asleep on the way back. That's right. Uh, you can fall asleep, and yeah. it's not going to keep going. And and most importantly, I don't really care. I, I don't have to come to Manhattan for anything. Okay. Uh, Did I, you make friends out there? I have an office in Great Neck, which I took just for fun and to be closer to even better restaurants. Yeah. We have some friends. I think my wife, who is less kind of social, actually has more friends because she's with the moms and she meets people That's through school. And yeah. I'm like a, a hermit. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, but it's nice. I have a lot of friends in Port Washington. I don't think you'd be into them. No. They're all like insurance salesmen and stuff. That's, yeah, I don't I've, think I've met them probably. Yeah, probably. I don't think it's your vibe. Uh, no, no disrespect. Which restaurant in Great Neck did you want to be close to? Nikkei of Peru. Oh, okay. Why? Because it has it. excellent sushi. Okay. Ah, sorry, Great Neck, Grill Time. Grill Time. Sorry. Okay. About Port Washington. All right. Very cool. Yeah. So Michael and I are from the opposite coast. Mm-hmm. We're uh, due south of you. And uh, we kind of we kind of were born and raised there. And we, that's pretty much where we belong. I think our particular brand of Long, <laughs> Long Island is highly specific. Yeah, so, we have some relatives there as well in American. Okay. Oh, very cool. Uh, you know our type. Around the bay, yes. So you know, so you know what's going on. Yes. All right. Well, we, um, we are very lucky to have you this week because you specialize in a lot of the things that are super relevant right now. And uh, we're excited to uh, get your take on all this stuff. You ready to rock? It's my pleasure. Yes, right. let's go. My man. George, did you do something in real estate? I did in China. I did ten years of private equity real estate. Yeah. So actually buying land, developing private equity real estate yeah. in China. Yeah. I think one of a handful of real foreigners, not like from Singapore, or Hong Kong, that actually, okay. had a, you know, it wasn't my company, but we had a platform. We bought land, we developed it. Uh, what full made contact you, What sport. made you think that you could do that? Going back to Adam Newman, Israelis just kind of think that they can show up and. Uh, can we talk about that for a second? Like, yeah. So. When the whole WeWork thing was at the apex of the madness. Mm-hmm. Um, 19? 2019, 2019, yeah. Okay. September, October. So I actually, I knew a commercial real estate broker that had done a lot of WeWork deals mm-hmm. and he knew those guys really well. And uh, he's just like, there's nothing that can stop them. Like if they decide they want to do something. And then when I watched the show, uh, did you watch the show? I did. Okay. There's two of them, but yeah. Okay. Uh, I forget which one I watched. I watched the one with Jared Leto. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Um, did me too? They made two of them? There's one more documentary, I think, and one kind of yeah, so, all right. fictional. So, actually, so, so my friend is like, you know what's really crazy is that all these people got taken in by this concept. Mm-hmm. And like the, some of the most sophisticated investors in the world, including SoftBank, like were shoveling. Uh, SoftBank is not one of the most sophisticated well, investors right. in the world. Largest, yeah. I should have said. Yeah. Um, but he's like, these people were acting like they never met an Israeli before. <laughs> <laughs> like his whole shtick with we're we're gonna use WeWork as a platform to improve the world, like that's yeah it's it's Israeli guys that's yeah, how it's they like roll. The Zohan kind of yeah yeah what real the, estate version. So what the hell is that about? No, listen. First, I think WeWork is still alive. Remarkably, it's worth one hundred and forty million dollars or okay. something today. But wow. uh, but it's still there. No, and, I'm talking more like the mentality. What it, what is that? One, listen. We come from a small country. Yeah. Whatever idea we have, it's always an outperforming focused. small country. No, it's a, you guys yeah, punch but it always way focuses above your weight. on going outside. You know, yeah. you're not building anything local. So to begin okay. with, you're planning to sell to to Americans or to everyone else. Okay. Second, we're giving a lot of responsibility from a young age. Even before we get to the army, Israel is actually 
contrary to what you may have heard, a very safe place. Kids walk around, they take the bus on their own, they go to the shop on their own, they do right. stuff, they take care of each other. So we have that going for us as well. And then, yes, the, the Army thing. I mean, Adam was an officer. How does that Navy. work? You finish high school, mandatory service? Yeah, three years. Right after high school? Mm -hmm. Immediately okay. after. So you finish high school at 18, yeah. and then you're in the Army till you're 21, yeah. and then university mm -hmm. for some, not for everyone. Yeah. Okay. And also the Army. Realistically, less than half of Israelis these days joined the was Army. Was it Russians? They turned. No, every, everyone. I mean, like me as well. But like a lot yeah. of people don't go. I mean, a lot of people are ultra-Orthodox these days, so they don't go at all. Okay. We have a big Arab population, so they are exempt as well. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of Israelis, you know, they have mental issues, health issues. Yeah. There's a lot of people just that the army doesn't really So not need. everybody goes, but, no. but most or yeah. half. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. You did it? I did it. What yeah. was that experience like? It, it impacted me incredibly. Yeah. But I could have lived without it. Okay. <laughs> so... All right. Yeah. I could have done other wonderful things with okay. those precious three years. What did it give you that you wouldn't have had otherwise? No, life, I mean, I was in real combat. I was in Lebanon, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it was three years. People were shooting at me. I shot back at oh them. I saw people get hurt. Uh, it was an insane type of life. And you also just, even without the combat stuff, you learn, you push yourself. You're in a structure. You, you figure out how to fit in, how to move up, how to get along with all sorts of random people that you're kind of stuck with suddenly in, under very yeah. intense conditions. Uh so you learn a lot, but again, I I like to think that I would have learned something also. I wonder elsewhere. what that's like for your for the for like the parents in that situation. Like you have an eighteen year old, still a child, right? And to your parents, you're always their child, mm -hmm. and it's like, all right, this is just what we do. Like I'm going, and I wonder, like I wonder what that must feel like. I don't know yet. My kids are very yeah. young. But it's terrible. And my dad was actually a military guy. And still, yeah. when I was in Lebanon and I would speak to him, I could hear, you know, I could yeah, hear yeah. his voice crack because it just it's just insane. Well, thank God uh, you got through that. And uh, we're here to talk about all of the current stuff. Um, but it's really great to have that background. How are we doing, John? Feeling, Feeling good? good? Yeah? All right. All right. It's the crowd going wild for you right now. Episode 94. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Public. Duncan, did you know that interest rates are breaking out again? No. Well, I'm here to tell you that, in fact, they are. The six-month treasury is now yielding 5.4%, which is kind of wild. And with public, you can easily, very, very easily buy treasury bills backed by the full faith and credit of our beautiful institutions, uh, no minimum holding periods or settlement delays or anything like that. And when you buy treasuries on public, the bills are held securely in custody at the Bank of New York Mellon, which is the world's largest custodian bank and security services company, so you can trust that they are in safekeeping. To learn more, go to public.com slash compound. We have a very special guest today. We, uh, we've been excited for this episode for a while. It got postponed once. You, our fault, not yours. Uh, but you're finally here. Dror Poleg is on the Compound and Friends today. Dror is an economic historian. He is an author. 
and you have a focus on how technology affects people's lives, perfect guest for this week. Um, Drawer has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and more. And you have a new book coming out. It's called After Office, A Survival Guide for Cities, Companies, and Humans. What's the story with the book? So, you know, all of the world that we see around us was essentially designed around the office. The office is the anchor of our current civilization okay. in many ways. Both it dominates the skyline. So visually, if you would land here from Mars and you would think, okay, what's the most important thing for this right. culture? It's like right. those office buildings. But it dictates everything else. The, the shape of our transportation system, our schedules, how much time we spend with our kids, even the design of our classroom is kind of, you know, you're being taught how to sit at an office basically ultimately. Uh, and even after we retire, a lot of our savings are invested in commercial real estate that is supposed to give us those stable returns that right. allow us to live in retirement. Now, what we're currently going through is kind of the breaking of that order, uh, which doesn't mean that offices will not exist, but a bit like the things that preceded them, like the factories or like the farms that used to kind of be the cores of the centers of our civilization, offices are going to lose that power. And then yeah. all of those things that I just mentioned are going to have to change. The way our cities are this designed. It's going to take schedule. a long time for that change, though. It's going to take a long time, but it's first, it's already happening, and arguably yeah. it's been happening for 50 years. And it has significant consequences, and sometimes it happens faster, just like in the last three years. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, in your book, do you end up finding that actually this is going to be good, and here are the silver linings, or like what's your, what's your overarching uh, premise behind what this is going to do? to our society. It, it's going to be good because it has to be good because it's happening and we'll just have to figure out. It's inevitable, to do about so we'll it. have yeah. to make it good. Uh, but it is good. I think cities are due a rebalancing away from offices and more towards just people, residences, other activities. Uh, there's no need for us to waste so much time commuting and also working in a certain way and kind of pretending to work in a certain way. Uh, there's no need for us to make tasks for ourselves. Guys, don't listen to him. I still, <laughs> I still expect you here. Hold on. So, so, but you would agree this is not going to affect all cities in the same way because there are still cranes putting up uh, glass towers, office towers in places that I've been recently like Nashville mm -hmm. and Houston. They're still building. They're still breaking ground. It's not even building from yeah, four years Houston's ago. Yeah, Houston's office market is, is in trouble, at least at the moment. Okay. I mean, vacancy there is high. In Dallas, it's very high. It's higher than in Manhattan, okay. actually. So they might be building uh, new, but the old buildings are not full. Th and That's they never the will current be. thinking, which is driving them to build those new offices. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do so well, or at least as well as they expect. Uh, there's now this kind of talking point about flight to quality. Like, okay, the good new buildings will be okay. Yeah. But that's a bit like looking at the beginning of a recession and to say, okay, Louis Vuitton is still selling well, so let's just build more Louis Vuitton stores. That's not necessarily going to be the thing. So that right, saves the right whole around market. the corner from us is one Vanderbilt, which obviously they started before the mm -hmm. pandemic. They finished it just in time for the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> uh, You actually couldn't have worse timing. But then when you hear them talk about it, it's 96% occupied or something. It's all AAA tenants, mm -hmm. like the best of the best. Yeah, but those tenants were in place before the pandemic probably. Before it was finished. You think if they had an out right now, uh, like one Vanderbilt. Well, yeah, I wouldn't want to market an office building now. But these anecdotes, I mean, they don't mean so much. I mean, I some buildings are going to do okay. Some malls are doing okay in Long Island. It doesn't tell us so much yeah, about Rose what happened to retail. Yeah, Rosalfield is fine. Uh, at the end of the day, this market is, is getting hit really hard. It already did, but I think there's much more to come. We talked about, Michael and I talked about this week, there's still a very big disconnect in the prices of the REITs. Like yeah, the, like the stock prices. Um, 
because of the prices of the buildings. Those have, adjust, yeah, yeah. those have adjusted already. The discount to now for REITs is like 60% like they, or something they treat, the They treated those exactly like you would expect them yeah. to. But then when you look at like, um, I guess, leases and all these, it hasn't really come home to roost yet. I think that's probably a function of the staggered nature of all these long-term leases. That, I mean, most of the leases that were signed before COVID have not been up for renewal yet. Most of the loans that were given out to these properties before COVID have not been up for yeah. renewal yet. Plus, the way the system is structured, it's in everyone's interest to pretend for as long as possible that the asset is still worth a lot. You know, the, the owner, the banker, the government, everyone wants to pretend that nothing happened. Even the employers and the tenants kind of pretend that everyone's going to come back. There's even some companies that mandate five days at the office, but explicitly tell people that they're not enforcing it, that they can do whatever they want. So it's kind of like a ridiculous situation. So uh, you must know people uh, where you live that are in that situation. I certainly do. People yeah. that work on Wall Street. And the way it seems to work is the people with young kids at home get a little bit more slack. Even though they're less senior, mm -hmm. the bosses are almost like more understanding of, hey, you were really only in three days this week. And then there's like, the generation above, I guess my generation, they're like a little bit like, what the hell is this? Why do I have to be here? And these people have like this automatic out. So you could already sense the tension within these firms because yeah. it's not being enforced equally. Yeah. Right. Troy, you had a great line in one of your posts recently. You said, we assumed the internet was only a problem for retail real estate. Uh, obviously pertaining to commercial real estate, specifically the office. Like we didn't foresee... Zoom or Google Meets or whatever, the, the pandemic. Like, no, some of us did. Go yeah. on. Go uh, I, wrote, I published a book in 2019 <laughs> called Rethinking Real Estate that basically described oh, what is happening really? right now. So when, uh, the pan so when the lockdown started, were you like, see? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but did you I was the crazy guy going to private equity real estate conferences <laughs> You know, in 2018, 2019, telling people stuff, and they're like, "Oh, who invited this guy?" And now, yeah. like, nobody wants time to, to see them. Okay, yeah. uh, I think that it's probably not. These buildings are not zeros. No, but it's probably hasn't fully dawned on people uh, the extent to which things are not going back. Because a lot of things did come back, like a everything came back. Concerts, apart from the office, yeah. business travel has come back. Who would have thought? Business travel no, is already— No, business travel, hospitality came back. Business travel is still down depending on which cities. A lot of business hotels are in trouble. I think the, air, hospitality the, the, airlines, general, are, the airlines yeah. are saying they think they got their business traveler pretty okay. much back, which I was surprised. Um, yeah, but, may, same. So some things came roaring right back. Broadway shows, like nothing ever happened. Like, like mm -hmm. waiting lists for everything. This is one of the few things that's just not going to be that way. Yeah. yeah. And there's another issue. I mean, you mentioned those kind of really nice buildings that are still attracting people. I think something fundamental has changed in the nature of the asset itself, which is which is part of the story. Those buildings that attract people now, their OPEX is much higher. They have to offer all sorts of services. They have to in invest in fit out and all sorts of stuff yeah. that they didn't want to do before. They have to give up more parts of the building to stuff that is not necessarily a profit uh, center. And... The commitments that they get from their tenants are lower than before, are of lower quality. People want flexibility. People want to More sign shorter leases. Yeah, so so, so it's ten really year leases are now seven year leases. Seven. So, yeah, five. So, if it was a, so if it was like a treasury bill twenty years ago, now it's more like a hotel or like an operating. That's a great business. point. We're yeah. going to come up in twenty. Our lease is up at the end of twenty twenty seven. I know your landlord, by the way. So be nice to them. What are they called? Harbor Group. Harbor. Shout out to Harbor Group. Um, <laughs> Our lease is going to come up at the end of 2027. I have no idea what our plans are, by the way, so mm -hmm. I'm not breaking any news. But I also know that I'm not signing a 10-year lease anywhere in Manhattan because I don't think I'm going to have to. 
Yeah. Maybe I'll be wrong, but I just don't think I'm going to have to. Yeah, I think that's part of what's changed. Like 20 years ago, it was in everyone's interest to sign a 10-year lease. Like the, the tenants yeah, wanted, wanted that in. certainty, but right, now right. they don't. That's and right. Well, you yeah. knew that prices would be higher in 10 years. We don't yeah, know and also anymore. you kind of had an idea of what you're even going to need. Today, part of the, the bigger context of what's happening now in office, and that's the real hit that they're going to get, is that I think we're shifting towards an increasingly nonlinear economy where it's very hard for us to understand how the input that we put in impacts the output that we get out on the other hand. Yeah. So nobody could tell you today what they're going to need in two years, let alone 10 years. And you as a landlord, when you think, okay, maybe I'll only take public companies, but most public companies today, they, they lose money and they do all sorts of stuff that like, you know, do I want to sign Uber as my tenant or General Motors as, as my tenant? Which one is going to be here in 10 years? Yeah. I have no idea. So I have 58 people here and less than half are in New York. And I don't think I'm unique. Mm-hmm. It's just like the way we've built the business and none of it was deliberate. It's just It just turns out that there are incredibly high quality people that we could attract to come work here. And it really doesn't matter that they're not physically here. And I think that's like almost any kind of industry that you can come up with. Uh, in financial services, like any any subset of financial services. Well, it used to be I don't you, know if that's true for it, every industry. It used to be you were trying to hire the best person locally. Exactly. And now we can hire the best person anywhere. And, and that's the most important thing, what you just touched on, and that's what I wrote in the book and what I saw coming. 2015 or so, tech companies started splitting their headquarters, right? Amazon yeah, yeah. HQ2, Facebook, yeah. Apple, but all of them happening. And what they were doing to an unsophisticated observer just looked like business as usual. Like they're opening another branch. Companies always had that. But actually what they're trying to do is not recruit customers, it's recruit talent. Now there's a theory, economic theory, that explained why cities actually became more important since the rise of the internet. And the theory was that as the economy becomes more dependent on knowledge work and creative work, that notion of matching specialized talent becomes so much more valuable and more important. So companies must concentrate in a handful of the largest labor markets because the network yeah, that's they hire that from the largest place. possible pool. Right, but right. what the theory didn't take into account was the largest possible pool is the internet. <laughs> it's not New York City. And increasingly, companies are showing that preference to make those matches. And they're saying, yes, I'd rather, to have, I'd rather have everyone in the same place if I could. But if there's a trade-off between that and hiring the best person, I'm going to go with the best person. So, so the pandemic sped up something that was already underway. And now if you're hiring engineers or other types of knowledge workers and they happen to be in Salt Lake City, you're probably, as an employer, all things being equal, yes, it would be great for the culture if everybody saw each other every day. But- we can use tools like Slack and Zoom yeah. and we can keep in touch and we can have trips where we get people together, but I can get these really high quality people. It's a lower cost of living for them to be there. And the work that I'm putting out does not suffer in the least. And you could even make arguments that maybe it's improved by having that diversity within a labor force. Yeah. So now tell me the story of why all of a sudden that reverses. I can't, ima- I can't imagine it ever would. I, I don't think it reverses. I think there might be an equilibrium one day, but at the end of the day, there's just many more options now for companies. Some companies will still want to be all in person, maybe more than ever before, more intensively. Uh, but a big chunk of the market, yeah, I think is gone forever in that sense, or at least the pro-office, anti-office doesn't capture that. But I think a lot of these people will be working in offices, but they'll be working in completely different places. You know what's the biggest casualty of, of all of this? Um, those horrible midtown lunch places 
where you eat out of a, a buffet table. Yeah. yeah. That's that's all, all of that shit. I'll is always over. remember them. Hey, listen to this. <laughs> uh, this was a week ago. New pandemic era ride ship record yesterday. The subways recorded 4 million paid rides on Wednesday. Um, this is for New York. And I actually saw a, a kid jump over the turnstile. I was like, huh, okay. I guess people are doing that. Was it Duncan? Listen, <laughs> so Kent, Carl Quintanilla tweeted, losses from New York City fare and toll evasion are staggering. Mm-hmm. Nearly 700 million in 2022 alone. This includes uh, 285 million in subway fares. And Drawer, today you tweeted, uh, 40% of New York City's tax revenue comes from real estate. 40% of property taxes come from commercial property, mostly offices. Yeah, so the MTA, apart from people kind of not paying altogether, there's also paying people that are just not showing up. So I think their revenue is about two and a half billion short. Of so that's a pre-COVID. political hot topic, right? Yeah. New York State already, we spoke about those talented people that can work anywhere. 70% or so of New York State tax revenue comes from, I forgot how many people, but from people, sorry, 70% of it comes from people earning 200000 uh, who theoretically are probably the most mobile people. Yeah, and 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 they already moved. So the oh tax revenue, the tax base of New York State, I think is 14% lower than it was 2019. Yeah. So even in, even in nominal turn, in real term, however you look at it, the damage is there. There's, there's a, yeah. And there's, federal receipts are up 15%, at least nominally. So it's not like everything is down. People are moving people out are of leaving. here. And well, going, New York is a net loser yeah, of population. Yeah, but of really rich people. Of affluent people. There's a, there's a there's a scene in w- in one of the last episodes of Succession where the techno Viking is like mocking uh, uh, Kendall Roy. Oh, I know. Like, that is there anything to do in this shithole? They were in New York City. Is there anything to do in this shithole town? Um, and uh, they have this like mini debate about New York, and he's basically like. Nothing happens here that doesn't happen everywhere else. Like Yeah, but he hasn't Seoul, been to Long Island. So. He hasn't been to Long Island. That's a good point. Uh, all right, very interesting. We're going to talk about uh, the, the biggest story of the week, maybe of the year. Uh, NVIDIA, which you own shares of. I, I own. Michael missed out. I own AMD, Micron. Really? Not good enough. Not good. Uh, I don't, right. actually. So, so, so we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and NVIDIA, I think – uh, is up $200 billion in market cap on the day. The previous record for one-day market cap gain was, was it Microsoft? $190 billion one day, something like that. NVIDIA is not as big of a stock, but it's it's now approaching a trillion dollars. Um, they had 27 analysts raise their price targets today and three upgrades. The first thing that I saw on the numbers was $6 billion in revenue or something like that. And projecting eleven next quarter, so I was like, so I thought, <laughs> wait, huh? Whoa! And so, but yeah, the, but so, so they were expected. So before they upped it to eleven, the, I think they were at seven billion. Mm-hmm. So they were expecting seven. They upped it to eleven, and and, and there you go. The stock's up thirty. percent I saw price rate. targets going from three hundred to six hundred. Yeah, and the, <laughs> these are people that had buys or neutrals on the stock. Um, I want to just read a couple of these uh, quick analyst comments, and then I want to hear your take on what 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 went on today. This is uh, Ruben Roy at, at Stiefel. NVIDIA's recent momentum continued. Uh, NVIDIA remains in the sweet spot of AI infrastructure wallet, wallet share as buildouts of accelerated computer networks continue as the company's data center numbers grow. Um, questions about the supply, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Uh, uh, that's not a good one. Let me do this one. Um, this is the guy from City. Uh, raised his target to 420 from 350. While we had raised our target price and estimates into the earnings, 
generative AI upside was bigger than we expected. NVIDIA expects data center sales to roughly double in the July quarter, driven by uh, generative AI demand from CSPs, that's uh, cloud service providers like uh, Amazon and Microsoft, consumer internet companies, and accelerated computing in enterprises. NVIDIA estimates only 4% of the $1 trillion data center CPU installed base over the last four years has been GPU accelerated, implying AI adoption remains in the early innings. So the story basically is like 95% of the cloud infrastructure we have is just not good enough. Yeah. Um, do you buy, you buy that? I buy that. I mean, listen, the multiple on the stock is crazy. Yeah. Uh, no, it's only 9 million times earnings. What's the problem? But I think in terms of, I, I look at it the stupid way. I, I literally have a going reminder every day. I get a reminder, sell NVIDIA. Sell yeah. your NVIDIA. And every day I, I kind of ask myself, okay, is today the day? And then How long have you been in the I stock? don't. Probably two years or something. Okay, not but, to brag but most years. of the stuff I bought, you know, the yeah. last few months, um, and it's still. I mean, it's, it grew a lot, but it's still a small share of my portfolio. I'm not like all in on it, but but it's a big chunk already. Uh, my friend Packy McCormick, shout out Packy, yeah, we love Packy, wrote a great piece a couple of months ago called "Intelligent Superabundance," and, and I think that's the story here. I think intelligence is going to be embedded in so many new products. It's going to touch so many work processes. I see it already happen with me. I'm addicted to it. I use it all day long for, for my writing, for emails, for work, for automating yeah. tasks, for, for generating images. And most people are so far behind in, in terms of starting to even use what we have now, let alone stuff that will be invented in two months or in two years. Uh, so I see the only the only cap here is really how much, how quickly they can produce and kind of geopolitical yeah. stuff uh, but I look at it in the dumb way, just in terms of pure market cap in this market, in this country and, and financial environment that we live in. A company like this is still worth less than a trillion dollars. Can it be worth five trillion in five years? I think it has a decent it's, shot. Well, and that's so it's, good enough it's for now me. in that category with Tesla. It's almost a trillion. It's like nine fifty. It's yeah. now in that category with Tesla, where it's like, well, what is this? And, you know, because it's like but Tesla it's is more a great than example. Just chips. It's the whole software platform. So they talk about Tesla as like this platform for continued innovation in robotics and all these other things. That's now the way that they talk about NVIDIA. If you're just thinking about it as we make and sell chips, you're missing what the foundation here is. But also we make and sell chips is a lot. And I think actually Tesla is a great counterexample. If you buy the Tesla story, the NVIDIA story is much simpler, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, they this is the infrastructure for all this All roads rush. in AI and machine learning. Yeah lead to NVIDIA. Listen listen to this quote. This is from uh, Raymond James analyst. There's an AI war and NVIDIA is the only arms dealer. Yeah. And, and we might, you know, maybe in three years they'll invent a completely different architecture. Uh, this bet could lose. I'm not saying it's a sure bet. Put all your money on it. But in terms of what I see out there and, and also different scenarios of like where the market is going for different reasons, this seems like a story. This is uh, I'm happy to, the kind of upside downside is, is fine as far as I'm concerned. This is Adam Parker from Trivariate, a uh, friend of the show. Shout out to Adam. Uh, he put out a note on AI in general and the stocks that are caught up in the AI mania uh, back in April. And he says, AI, uh, NVIDIA is potentially not expensive. This is prior to today. Potentially not expensive at all if AI grows for decades to come. Importantly, valuation is not an efficacious predictor of subsequent performance for hypergrowth stocks. We have seen estimates that ChatGPT5 is currently being trained on roughly 25,000 NVIDIA graphics processing units or GPUs. 
That would be well over $200 million worth of hardware. AI is taking off now and has investable implications today. It is possible that valuation for things that are not AI-able could experience slow multiple expansion, and we would visit this. All right, so he's basically saying, like, there are implications here even for things that have nothing to do with AI on their surface mm-hmm. because of how many areas AI is going to get itself Like they're sucking into. up they're sucking up all the multiple expansion? Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, so the, the 25,000 NVIDIA GPUs, just so people understand, the A100 chip, which is last generation technology, it's a $10,000 chip. And you need like thousands of them to do anything yeah. at scale. The H100 which is the one that was so powerful, the, the United States government said to NVIDIA, you cannot sell this in China. <laughs> That's a $20,000 chip. Nobody else is making a competing chip that could even come close to the to, – I yeah. mean, that's the story here that I think knocked everybody on their asses today. I also think it will blow up at some point. Oh, sure. But I think, oh, we're all going to lose all but, of our but money. But I think but, and hope there'll be exit. I, I think in terms of the hype of this story and in terms of how many people even understand what's going on, I think it has more room in the to run. Well, they, yeah. could be, they could be at $10 a share, an annualized $10 a share run rate in earnings over the next two or three quarters based on the guidance that they gave today, right? Even if there's pull forward demand, blah, blah, blah. Like that's realistic. So $400 stock on $10 worth of earnings, it's definitely one of the most expensive stocks, obviously, but- Well, what else is growing revenue like that? It's yeah. it's it's also a stock that like after a day like today, the when is this quarter end? June 30th? How many people are like, Fuck, I can't believe I don't have any right. NVIDIA in my portfolio. Right, so, so, so in terms of broader investing implications, Eric Newcomer linked to Harry Stebbings, who is an investor, a VC guy. Um, he said- uh, Harry is often has an optimistic spin on things, but he's dour um, uh, about the amount of hype in AI right now. So Harry says, um, controversial take. There is simply not enough AI assets to absorb the immense wall of cash coming for AI companies. Not controversial. Prediction, this will be worse than the dot-com bubble in terms of lost dollars and hype companies. Be patient, stay disciplined. Technology cycles always take longer than you think. So I think that's part of a big part of the reason agree. why I, NVIDIA is doing what it's doing today. Yeah. I tweeted there a couple aren't of 10 NVIDIAs. Ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I said it in more succinctly than him. I, I wrote a couple of months ago it's on Twitter. People are going to lose more money on AI than they did on crypto. So, but it doesn't mean there's no story here. But, but all right, but this is a prerequisite. Are lose money too. So, I've been saying AI bubbles since February. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even we're not even there yet. Yeah, we're not even there yet because we haven't even really had like the IPOs and all that shit. That's coming, obviously. Um, but you look at like. All right, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet ostensibly could be talked about as AI stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, fine. That's a lot of market cap. That could avoid. That could um, soak up some of these dollars. Nvidia is a trillion dollar stock. That could soak up some of these dollars. The question is, okay, then what? Like, there you're going to have this secondary class of stocks that are, let's say, market caps between a billion and twenty five billion dollars. They're all going to start talking about AI. Like their CEOs yeah. are all gonna, of course, because oh, of course, yeah, um, there are gonna be more losers than winners in that category. Is my, would be my bet, and I'm trying my best to not screw around with that stuff. But that's like what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting sucked up. But, but, <laughs> I will oh, get sucked but up. If, but even the big companies, there might there might be some major corrections. 
yeah. along the way. Okay. But like, what do you think I always the- think of Microsoft, you know, in 1999 or 2000. It took it, I don't know, what, 16 years to go back to where Cisco it was. Too. So it, it was painful. You don't want to be caught up there. But I think what do you I, do I like through, to think that I'm surrounded if- by smart enough people that I'll know not how to the, well, run not, away Not in this room. We enough. don't know shit. <laughs> what, no, do you do, what do you do if you're so excited about AI because you're using ChatGPT uh-huh. and you're messing around with all the new like um, art programs that are out? What do you do if you're so bullish but then you're also not an idiot and you know you're not supposed to be putting a lot of money into a stock that just went up 200%? Like what do you do? You just like wait, wait for something to happen? Wait. So I yeah, can't do that. Uh, yeah, you wait. You, what are you waiting you for? You allocate. Though? You allocate. No, but I think you allocate responsibly. How, so thank you. Hold on. You, now, you, now you're talking. So play my block. small. So play small. Josh, what must. did I tell you on the train the other day? I'm buying. You told me a lot of things. I, s- I said I'm buying. We're a- on a hot mic. I said I'm buying AMD just in case. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike said I, I added a little, a little, a little sniff of AMD just, just in case. And, just and also case. the best strategy. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm teaching an online course about AI. Okay. So well, that's the real. That's that real way doesn't to do it. go up or that's down. There's excitement. It. People want to learn. I teach them. I create value for them and for what me. You, and everyone's happy. What are you teaching specifically? How to use it, or like what the implications are going to be from it? So both. So it's called uh-huh. Hypefree AI. Hypefreeai.com. And my course is generally Wait, spell, I, spell that Hypefreeai. Oh, Hypefree. Okay. Or Smart. just Hypefree.com is also good. Okay. Uh, and. It's a mix. So it both it's generally for experienced professionals. My audience tends to be wealthier, older, kind of like you know, I'm I'm young for my audience. Okay. I'm 43. Uh, so people that want to play with it, want to understand how to use it, so a variety of tools. Also how to use it practically for to automate things, for financial analysis, for productivity. And there's half of the time is kind of spent more on like understanding where it's coming from. How did it get here? Right. What are they, and then like, what are the implications for different businesses? How to think about it? So I want to ask you, what do you think is being most overestimated right now? And what do you think is being underestimated or not talked about at all when it comes to AI? So I think overestimated, it's a weird answer, but I think we overestimate our ability to control what's about to happen. Like uh, all of these discussions about- are, or, or I think there's tons of fear out there. No, but we are overestimating our agency in this situation that all these discussions about like, let's stop it, let's slow it. Oh, let's we might, okay, yeah, like, the genie's out of the yeah, bottle. Okay, these are all nice ideas in theory, but yeah. this thing is happening, it's open sourced. Here in America, it'll be hard to stop and the Chinese are not gonna stop if we decide to stop. So I mean, the, the, the kind of the prisoner's dilemma here is very simple. We can't like decide but, to slow but, it down. But do you remember all the paranoia when we decoded the human genome, that all of a sudden yeah. there was going to be these experiments and the Chinese were going to make super <laughs> soldiers. <laughs> I know, but are they really? Not I know super they soldiers, a but baby, they're cloning but people. Like, yeah. No, but don't, like, it sounds like that to me. As somebody who's been around, I've been around, you know, for a while. I'm a little bit older than you, so you know what I'm talking about. But like, More handsome, too. I, I doubt it. So there, there was like this wave of like, wait a minute, we're playing God. Mm-hmm. We've gone too far. This is now going to get out of control. The government could say whatever they want, but people are going to start cloning themselves. Like none of that shit happened. Is it possible that all the fear that AI is going to get out of control might also be overblown? Or I don't know Here, enough to have an opinion. So I'm curious. Nobody knows enough. And that's part of the thing. Again, with overestimating our agency here, I think we, we just have no idea what we're okay. dealing with here. I think even the stuff that you described about the past, I don't think we have any idea about that either. In terms of when you look at history, how things play out, 
in 20 years, we might understand that all the stuff that we've done with uh, with okay. designing babies and so uh, things are happening is, that we're not even aware we'll of. Well, understand, that, and that's part yeah, of yeah. that nonlinear nature that I mentioned earlier. You know, okay. we're in a world where suddenly something can happen and you didn't see it coming, and then it, it blows up and it changes everything. Uh, I think AI already, in that sense, is dangerous enough. And I'm sure all sorts of crazy stuff is going to happen in the next two years, let alone beyond that. You know, robots convincing other humans to do something on their behalf, letting them into places, manipulating them in all sorts of ways. Yeah, we'll see all sorts of crazy things. But I think we we just have to roll with the punches to kind okay. of think that we can control and kind of pull pull the handbrake and the, tell people, tell technology to stop moving. That's not going to happen. Okay, so, so that's overestimated. So what I'm do you think we're not optimistic. Like I'm embracing it because I don't think I have a choice. Sure. What do you think we're not uh, talking about enough on this topic or what's not getting enough attention? I think we're underestimating how strong it already is. I think okay. just rolling it out to everyone and teaching them how to use it is going to have a dramatic impact on the economy. And then all the tools that will be built just on top of GPT-4 can already make miracles, basically. You know, my dad was going through a bunch of tests a few months ago. I kept dropping blood tests and things into it. It just told me, analyze stuff, told me what's going on. Stuff you had that as he had much to... information as like a doctor. Not just a doctor, but he spent three months running between different doctors. He was like in some weird, unique, exotic kind of situation that thank God now is okay. Good. But in 10 seconds, I got from it all the options and what I should do that took me three months to go through experts in the U.S. and in Israel and wherever you want. Uh, there's, there's and that's an mind-blowing. There's an argument that the uh, invention of uh, the Gutenberg uh, uh, printing press like basically upended the feudal system in Europe. Mm -hmm. So there's like a before and an after. And the after is all of a sudden you could print books in any language, not just Latin. And so people had the ability to read something when before that they just had to rely on whatever the priest said and the priests were under the thumb of the the, the kings and yeah. the lords. And then all of a sudden you just had like – Plus language got unified. So yeah, so the you know all of those Protestantism movements, the Lutherans, et cetera, like all, all of that, that whole revolution stems from the Bible being printed in the lingua franca of whatever place um, – and and that's like kind of how whoever was running the world lost control. Um, this seem, the, the internet seems like it was kind of a moment where a lot of other things would be upended and they were. This seems like even bigger because now you're not just putting knowledge in people's hands. The generative part mm -hmm. is the part where like from my perspective, like all of a sudden people are able to do things that they weren't formally trained to do like code um, but a lot of other things. There's some aspect of that that I think makes people uneasy. And we haven't even really seen uh, a big example, but we're going to, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we should be uneasy. Uh, even this internet thing, I don't think we have any idea what it's going to do to us. I mean, we started our discussion talking about cities and offices. We're just starting to get an inkling of what the world will look like just because of the internet. And AI is totally and part— that's 25 years in yeah. already. Yeah. And AI is totally part of that story. It couldn't exist without that data, without— interactions becoming digitized. Uh, in many ways, remote work kind of set the scene for AI to come into the workforce because it sent everyone home, moved everyone to the cloud and to Slack. And now you can just kind of, you're chatting with, with a robot anyway, like you don't know who you're chatting to. So now you're chatting with an actual robot and he answers you and soon enough, both of you are robots and you're just What arguing. about employment? Um, because the argument that I hear from most people in the tech community of course, you're going to have job loss. Every technology revolution features job loss in the early innings. And then you have to create new jobs. 
um, the guy that runs Box, Aaron Levy. Yeah. He was saying something to the effect of, don't focus on what jobs can AI do. What what ends up happening is companies start focusing on, okay, what can the AI not do? And then that becomes your job. So a lot of people are in a job where the job itself is going to change, but not the employment. They're just going to have to do other things that AI can't. That's, uh, I, I think, a positive story. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, when you look at it from the macro perspective, everything is great. Society and the economy always create enough jobs. Just yeah. in that process, there's world wars, there's communist revolutions, yeah. there's all sorts of other stuff that happens along the way. Uh, so we might have to deal with some of that, and it's going to happen much faster. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It might be a good thing that it happens so quickly, we just adjust, and instead of it kind of spreading us thin. And Would you let your child go to law school? Knowing that this shit is out there, my kids are so young. I assume they'll they're definitely not going to go to a normal. They'll be, prom- they'll like be prompting in no time. No, they'll do something <laughs> else. I mean, the thought of me spending so much money on them going to the type of school that people learn in today doesn't make sense. Maybe it will make sense when they're eighteen, and I'll feel like I have to fall into line with everyone else. But at the moment, it just looks insane to me. Uh, yeah, well, let's put this thing up. You mentioned uh, people underestimating what it can actually do today. So you you wrote into ChatGPT, generate an HTML snippet with an interactive chart showing NYC population by decade from 1900 to 2000. So it gave it back to you. You copied and pasted, so this, and voila. So what? So what, this is the this is the HTML snippet. Yeah. So it's like an it's like something you could just embed somewhere. Yeah, I just put it in my website. Now I have like an interactive chart. It it went. It found the data. It rendered it. How is this interactive? No, you can tell. This is a screenshot, but okay. you can touch it and kind of like, you know, each each dot that you press, it kind of shows you the... Okay. It's, so it's no big is, deal, but that's just... It's no big deal. Right. So I did something similar on my blog. Mm-hmm. I just said, make me an H... Using HTML, write me a rainbow stripe. Mm-hmm. And I embedded it on my site. Not that anyone needs that, <laughs> right? But just like the idea that that would be something that a regular person would have to give to a coder... Six months yeah, ago. The, the, the marginal differences make a big difference. Like I'm I'm an individual creator. I make money creating content, giving talks. Right. And now exactly every idea that I have, instead of figuring out who I need to talk to about it and waiting a week, it's I just do it. And That's nuts. And I go on Zappy or other automation tools and I can do much more advanced things with them because I can add those two lines of code here and two lines of codes there and integrate that API and this API. And suddenly you have all these building blocks. So it's blocks. the aggregate of you yeah. and me and millions of people like us who were at the who were like at the mercy of somebody that could technically do that stuff are are now being liberated from that and yeah. then what are the ramifications when anyone can create anything the ramifications are much higher inequality so certain people are going to pull ahead become 10 times 100 times more productive certain people will stay behind the middle will disappear so just kind of doing your thing so who wins like the podcasters I'm Some, it, it just the, the economics of superstars that govern entertainment and sports are going to govern all professions. That's what's going to be the net effect what of AI and remote work. So it's not no doctors. It's like less doctors and then like the middle of the road doctor is no longer necessary. It, it means, you know, in the past, Taleb writes about it, scalable and non-scalable professions. In the past, your parents would tell you, choose a non-scalable profession like a lawyer, plumber. a doctor, a teacher, a plumber, someone who's constrained by geography and there's a normal distribution of income, which even doctors kind of have. It's skewed, but like, you know that if you'll be a doctor, you'll make a nice living. Like maybe you're not going to make a million dollars a year, but you're going to make something nice. More and more professions are now becoming scalable against their will. So whatever you want to go do, it's a profession that's going to have a few superstars making more of the money. 
and a long tail of people that make less and less money, but no middle. So just like by being there, like, you know, 50% of success is showing up, as Woody Allen said, that's no longer true. And that used to be true, particularly at the office. You know, just go there, show up, you'll get paid. Maybe you're not going to do great, but you're going to be okay if you're an accountant or a lawyer or whatever, or a teacher. That's what, less so what and less you, true. What do you say about something like this? So there are like radiology centers, right? Yeah. People go, they have x-rays, MRIs, all this stuff. And for the last 20 years, um, largely at the behest of the insurance companies, they send the results to uh, India. Right. And then an Indian technician takes a look at it and sends back a result. And that's pretty efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, don't send it to India. The machine itself is actually going to be more accurate. And like, so in other words, this kind of thing has already been happening, but it's been like globalization. Now we're going to turn inward and be able to do more things here Nobody, you know, like and that might be bullish for America because we have bullish. other things to do in terms of services and things to sell to each other and, and that's right. spend our time on. Yeah. It's just not bullish if you're a radiologist necessarily right. or somebody that gets paid to read these results. If but the you can become can a radiology influencer. That's right. You could do it. You could do a TikTok. Um, who said this? The Wait, more. Hold on. Before, I, before okay. I just want to return to NVIDIA for a second because I think this is an important point. When thinking about valuations, obviously in the short term, you know, throw them out. Um, but if you look at some of the gigantic tech stocks, so Amazon trades at two times sales, um, Google and Meta are at five times, Tesla and Apple is at seven, Microsoft is at 11, and NVIDIA is at 35 times sales. So completely off the charts. And this guy on Twitter, MacRalph, tweeted, um, given the NVIDIA valuations, I think it's worth sharing this anecdote from the 2000s. At its peak, the Sun Microsoft system stock hit a valuation of 10 times sales. Um, when stocks took a massive beating later on, this is what its CEO, Scott McNeely, had to say to investors. So just bear with me for a second, but I think this is important. All right, the CEO said, at 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no tax on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my, my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? And that stock ended up at $3. Yeah, I agree. The only but you're thing, not but you're not selling no because part of again we're we're chasing you know my I'm most famous right article maybe oh of no the you're last good for the years. next five weeks you're good for the next five no, weeks I wrote an article called in praise of Ponzi's great article you know Matt Levine first mocked it and a year later said actually <laughs> actually it, it has a point like everything everything is basically a Ponzi that we live in At a first. world of social dynamics and the only way to know if something will succeed is after it actually succeeded that's right and. And that's all we know at the moment. Yeah. So when something, <laughs> when when something is heating up, if you can write it, write it. That's the best you can know. No, There's every, no way of knowing so, anything yeah, else. Yeah, Matt, Matt writes about this and, all the time because in the context of crypto, like this, like su such and such token only actually has value if new people come along and think it has value after you buy it. Yeah. Uh, how is that different than, for example? Just like, like, hear me out, but like a university. Like, is your degree worth- Or money itself. Is your degree worth anything if the university fails to find another student next year and then the year after and then closes down? Like, and then you're walking around with this degree of a defunct university. Is that worth anything? 
Like there's a lot of things that require new people to come along. So I kind of get what, is that what you're saying basically? I'm saying, but also in the real sense, not just in terms of reputation and marketing, more and more of our product depends on social dynamics. So you spoke before about like the YouTube and that person that could do whatever they want from wherever they want. Like ChatGPT now enables me to, you know, do stuff that I needed a whole team to do a few years ago. So right, right. when you look at what happened with YouTube, when suddenly people were empowered to compete directly with, with the networks and with other content creators, you know, some guy can have 2 billion views yeah. by working in five minutes. What determined that success was the fact that he managed to convince enough people to click like who then triggered the algorithm that intensified the success and more people. It's all social. And in crypto, they added money to it where you can actually incentivize people to help the dynamic and then benefit from their contribution to the dynamic because the people who pressed like earlier actually contributed to creation of value. Right. And increasingly, first, more and more of an economy is based on those type of products. We spend money on content. So if 50 years ago we had content to market actual stuff like soap operas, you know, to sell soap, today, con like air is what we sell to begin with, and even the stuff that is not air, even office buildings, everything is marketed through social media, through things that are governed by crowd dynamics, right. by algorithms. So everything is a pyramid. Everything is a social kind of stampede. Right. And and that's all there is. Right. So so if- it, Fun times ahead. <laughs> well, I was gonna say like, can that go on indefinitely? Or does at some point something of value actually have to- Packy keeps no, saying- No, it, it creates things, things of value. Things right. that get weirder. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it reminds me of all the uh, massive multiplayer, you know, online mm -hmm. games. Like there's value there because enough people keep showing up, but they have to keep showing up in order yeah, for the game to Everything is a live. network effect. Everything, everything is, is a network, network. Every, every, And everything is a network. What but was the crypto things go game in reverse, though. that was big in Southeast Asia? The? The Axie Infinity. Infinity. Yeah. yeah. So it's a Ponzi, yeah. but it's a video game. And it's only a Ponzi because the network dynamics went in reverse. Mm -hmm. If they didn't, if they kept finding new players who kept showing up, then theoretically it would be growing in value. Right. I, I wrote in that article, it's only a bubble once it bursts. Right. Before it bursts, you just don't know because it's working. It's recruiting more people like like any social network. As long as it's growing, it's growing. And, and then it makes sense and it's valuable. And what, once it isn't, it what, isn't. What are we saying here? The more new content there is, the more likely we are to consume old content. Who said that? Is it you? I, I wrote that. Uh, Tell I call, us about I call it. it the Vader paradox. It just like looked like, and that's before generative AI and taking that into account. But it looked like the more content, the more abundance there is on the internet, the more we tend to recycle existing winners that people are already familiar with and can kind of uh, rise above the noise. Okay. So, you know, that's why we have all these sequels and spin-offs and prequels and most of they the- Because they break through. Because yeah, it's a known quantity. They have an existing audience and they break through. Yeah. Uh, but even that, now with generative AI, I'm not sure even if that dynamic will persist. Like when, when you think about Disney and kind of their monopoly on, on certain things that they built over the last few years, once you can really generate personalized content for every person and that content can just pop up on the internet all the yeah, time. Yeah, but you know what the first thing people thought to do with mm -hmm. all this, this stuff? It's to take uh, existing pop stars and have them sing right. over yeah. someone else's song. Like. Like that's I I heard uh, Frank Sinatra sing "Get Low" um, by by Lil yeah, John. So that's the inequality I was talking about. Right. It gives so people, that's recycling. That yeah. to your point, there's like so much content out there, but people are recombining old things that already exist. Plus, all content now competes on a level playing field. So Disney has an advantage, but also it might become completely irrelevant in two years somehow. Grimes actually did something really cool. She open sourced 
her kind of yeah. investment. She said, anyone can use my voice to create a song. If it makes money, 50-50. Yeah. So but she's going to be in the minority. No, but, that's, but I think that's the, that's the play here. Okay. To encourage yeah. experimentation and explosion of options and to take a anybody cut. Who, anybody yeah. who wants to use the audio from this show to create new content, <laughs> so we're, AI, we're for business. AI will lead to a content boom or will it go the other way? Like Bob, Ben Thompson was talking, not Ben Thompson, Derek Thompson was talking to Ben Simmons. Big uh, difference. Bill, yeah. Was talking to Bill Simmons about like, what if in five years, like there's just like an AI that would just regurgitate what Bill says, like, you know, Celtics did this or whatever. Like, is that is that coming? Yeah. But I they, mean, Celtics will really have gonna be five more championships. Is there really going to be an audience for that? No. I don't think so. No. I think there will be something for that. But but again, it doesn't have to be Bill Simmons at that point. It just has to be... So, I actually, so I actually have this idea. I mean, you, look, I, I can't like take a theory I have and expound on it and write a paper because I'm not like academically... You know, you're South uh, Shore. I know that. It's yeah, I don't know shit. <laughs> but here's what I think. I think there's going to be a boom in authentication, and I actually think if you make 500 fake Drake songs and release them, even if the digital streaming platforms pick them up, which they won't, um, even if one or two of them catch fire and become a hit somehow, uh, because the right influencer plays it on yeah. their TikTok, that I, all right, I understand that could happen, and there'll be lawsuits and whatever. I also don't think. That no I think that novelty will wear off pretty quickly. If I make 500 Metallica songs and 300 Drake songs and I, and I put all this right. shit out there, I think that is going to make people yearn even more for the real thing. Yes. Drawer, can I quote you? Those who can afford it. So yeah. Drawer agrees. Drawer said, uh, as technology advances, it's cheaper and easier to create new content. And as a result, the digital experience becomes commoditized. If you want something unique, you'll have to go offline. Mm. Yeah. My friend Justin but, Frankel. But most people don't want something unique and they can't afford something unique. It My friend Justin Frankel is starting a business where he's going to authenticate um he's going to authenticate music memorabilia. Mm -hmm. So there's like this whole black market of people selling fake shit yeah. like you know this is this celebrity's harmonica or whatever. So it's like a very offline thing. It'll all be sold online, but it's like basically no no no, we witnessed the artist physically mm -hmm. play this instrument and then set it down and then we authenticated it on the spot. Like, I think that that's really going to be the thing that has value. Anyone that can authenticate and guarantee that something is real. And I think that'll apply to music and a lot of other art. And you, to your point, there'll be people that are just like, entertain me, I don't care if it's fake. But I don't think that's, that's going to be a great business. No, but part of, there's two points here. The quote you just read from me, I agree with it. But I think it gets more complicated because one of you the agree unique with your own quote. But okay. one of the unique things about AI yeah. is that it can generate unique content at scale. Yes. So it's not like taking the same thing and now sending it to a billion people like the internet can do. But it's sending a billion people something very cheaply new. something unique for them that okay. that is compelling to them, and that's a different story. But everything you just said actually reminds me of the C word, crypto. Oh my again. god. Okay. Yeah. You know that whole idea of kind of provenance of digital goods yeah. and how do you create complex trustless, royalty system and trustless. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if crypto is and will be the solution for that, but yeah, I think people won't. that spent the last five years in crypto know a lot about those dynamics and understand them much better than anyone else and saw them coming. And AI is actually part of that story now and it's all coming together. Let's talk about uh, millennials and uh, I guess this concept of peak millennials. We're saying that the, the, the most millennials will, will ever have were born in 1990. 
Yeah. Four point two million that year. We have this chart. Throw this up. I've had it with the millennials. I'm I'm already I'm all set. So what do you mean? What does that? I mean? don't know. This says peak millennials and the implications for cities, consumer goods, services, housing. How it messed up our understanding of the internet pre-COVID and what happens next. So that's Darrell Myers. He's a demographer. But, you know, we spoke so much now about cities and remote work and all of that. And yeah. a lot of the conversation around cities was, yeah, why are people not coming back to the office? Why did millennials leave the city? What kind of preferences they had? Yeah. But this guy already in 2015, he said, actually, cities now are really busy just because we have a lot of young people yeah. at this point in time, specifically, that are turning 25. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Plus, we just had the housing bust a few years ago, so there's not enough housing for them to buy anywhere else, so they have to go into the city and work. Plus, there's not enough jobs for them ever anywhere else, so they're moving into the city. And he said, by 2020, we'll see a big decline in, in highly educated people moving out of cities and going to live in smaller cities and elsewhere right. just because there's not going to be enough of them coming in every year because they're just but what getting about, older. But what about Gen Z? They come in, they're but renting not, all these apartments not as many that are of being them, abandoned. But there aren't as many of them. There are more millennials than Gen there's Z. There's like yeah. 70 million, I think. Just look look at the cohort by year. You know why Josh is bitter? Look at the year that he was born. Nobody cared. I know, but born during best. the dip. Born during yeah. the but dip. But we are the last generation Actually, of Gen Z, children. in three or four years, there's a pickup of people that were born 17, 18 years ago, they're going to hit the workforce and graduate that's from my college. So that's my daughter's yeah. generation. But at the moment, we're exactly in that level. If you look at this chart, you see like 2020 is kind of like the bottom of the demographic. Thing. Yeah. So you have like a million less people just graduating. So you have a million less people coming to Manhattan or to, you know, LA or San Francisco. What's the biggest difference between millennials and Gen Z? I know it's blurry because <laughs> that's pretty much it. I think... Gen Z. No, wait a minute. I'm wait saying minute. like wait from a, a from millennials. A, millennials remember life before the internet, right? Uh, barely. Some of. I mean, bare, I, I was born in 1980, so I'm a borderline millennial, and I remember life before. Yeah, the of internet. course, I was. Most there. of them, the, the, most of them were born in 1990, so they don't really remember life before the internet. So, if, okay. I think it's if like you the remember biggest Oregon Trail. Trail. You know, I died of dysentery all the time. <laughs> if you remember Oregon Trail, what <laughs> the game? You were, then you're. Then you're a millennial that yeah. remembers life before. Gen Z, <laughs> Gen Z does not know from Oregon Trail. Uh, yeah, I think if you think SpongeBob is really funny, you're, you're, you're probably a millennial. You're not a you're not a Gen Xer. I think this there's, there's some like foundational stuff, but the Gen Z thing, that's who took all the apartments that were abandoned during COVID. Right. Like all these buildings were rented out immediately. Mm -hmm. Like they. Residential is not the same as office. No. Even if they're in, Manha in Manhattan. In, well, in San Francisco, different story, for but, example. But I know millennials who are like still in these buildings that were then colonized by 22 and 23-year-olds, mm -hmm. and they're still traumatized. They can't believe <laughs> that. Like, they can't believe it because all of the people older than them left. And then – so th that dynamic of cities, I think, changes a little bit less when it comes to like who lives here, Right. But then who lives and works here is is the big difference yeah. maker. For, for New York specifically, there's um, there's no reason why the population of Manhattan won't be much higher in 10 years. Uh, they built Hudson Yards uh, in a really specific way. Mm -hmm. The big insight there was big companies, big employers like I think BlackRock and JP Morgan, who like some of the, the, the tenants. Yeah. The big insight was that Gen Z will not put up with this hour commute bullshit that their parents and grandparents went through and they actually want to live next door to where they work and there should be like a gym in between. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Hudson Yards, it's all these glass towers, brand new office buildings. Then there's an Equinox and then there's all the apartments. And it's not like I got to go downtown for work. 
It's like yeah, I the, roll the out of bed and there, I'm at my office. The problem there, and I, and I mentioned them actually in my 2019 book is a good example. We should have more mixed use, but actually Hudson Yards is not really mixed use because the people who live in those apartments are not the people who work in, there's not, they're not Gen Z employees, uh, corporate no? employees. Okay. The, the apartments are just so much more But I more think expensive. that's what they thought. That was that's the idea, what, that's right? That's the story. Okay. So it's nice that it's mixed. It's better than just having offices at this point. Okay. But the way it's priced and the type of residential product that they have there is not the product that, you know, a mid-level uh, corporate employees could afford to right. buy. Right. So, uh, a Gen Z person, like, uh, two years out of college can't can't spend half a million dollars on an apartment? No, or even a millennial <laughs> who's, like, who has a decent job who's not going to buy a $5 million apartment in Manhattan. Right. Um, Manhattan will always have that mismatch. Let's do some of this other stuff. Uh, Disney had a Star Wars-themed hotel. My understanding is they had actors dressed as Star Wars characters walking around all day long inside. How is this not a bigger hit? So they shut it down. What does this tell us about the value of physical versus digital assets? Yeah, so to go back to to Michael's story, to, to Michael's quote, sorry, yeah. th that was the play that Disney was making. It was like, oh, we have all this content. We have this captive audience. Now we can bring that to have it these people to have a unique experience offline. Yeah. But actually, a few things happened. One, the offline world got really, really expensive, both to build stuff, to operate it, to fill it with people. It's just really, really expensive. Yep. Second, one of the big problems, so they had to price it really high and nobody, won't, like not enough people. How much was come. it to stay at the Star Wars? Uh, like $5,000 yeah. for three nights yeah. or some crazy so thing. So how many people could really do that? Yeah. And uh, no, they assumed that like you know it's your special birthday once in your lifetime or something. Okay. The whole family. Well, they also they only built a hundred rooms, so they yeah. they sort of knew maybe that at least they started small. It's not like this was like a gigantic. Yeah. Gi I mean, I think I saw the write-off was like two hundred million dollars, something like that. Yeah, which that's is it's like a lot though. Which is a lot so, of money for something that you launched two years ago. It's not nothing. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing is they only had kind of one story that you can kind of live through. Which also en emphasizes the problems with doing stuff offline. Yeah, you have one story. If you get it right, it's a unique experience that people will love. But the chance that you'll get it right is much lower and the cost of failure is much higher. So when you're competing with other experiences online that now can become unique at scale because of AI, I think the thesis of, you know, offline will be okay because it offers unique experiences is kind of less compelling because well, people are going right, to be entertained depends. so well elsewhere. Uh, that the real world will have to try really hard and find new things to do. I think if I woke up in the Star Wars hotel, I'd kill myself. <laughs> I think I'd go back to, like, I'd come down to the lobby. People would be, like, interacting with me, maybe, like, chasing me with a, a, a Star Wars gun. I think I'd go back up to the room and just end it right then and there. So, um, all right. But I'm a, big, I'm a bigger offline person than online person these days. But I, I definitely see your point. Uh, Tell us how remote work and AI reinforce each other to just like bring this whole conversation full circle. So, you know, three years ago, we were all forced to stay home, uh, to start collaborating on the cloud, to start chatting with each other, to start to work asynchronously, uh, to have digital meetings. And basically that set the scene, prepared the ground for AI because now all these chatbots are coming. They don't need to wait until they have an actual robot and they can walk into an office and interact in the yeah. physical environment. They just plug in and they chat with us on Slack just like we chat with each other and they read our documents on Google Drive just like we would. Uh, and they're basically plug and play, ready to work and replace us and, and do whatever they want. At the same time, they also enhance digital collaboration tools for humans. So they make it easier for us to collaborate remotely. They make those tools better uh, and soon... Very soon down the pipe, there's all sorts of, you know, kind of 
holograms and cool stuff that, uh, you know, both Facebook and Google are building. The two years ago when they presented it, you had to like build like a crazy booth with all sorts of cameras. But now thanks to AI, you can have a TV like this with three regular cameras and it creates like a really cool kind of basically you think this stuff is coming soon you. where you can have a meeting with 10 people. They're all remote and they all are working, walking into a room together. Oh, like in Star yeah, Wars. It, it, what, you know in Star Wars yeah. there are holograms? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, so it enhances presence, which means more remote work, more work becomes digital or kind of mediated by technology, more room for AI to go into the workforce. And it, it kind so of So companies are not really going to be spending less money as a result of people working remotely. They're just going to spend money differently. Yeah, for sure. Because the tech is going to be very expensive. And the offices themselves, the good ones are going to be more expensive. And there's room for landlords to make money as well. But but most of them will not. That's the difference. That Again, the, the power law versus the normal distribution. Just building a decent building in Manhattan is not going to guarantee any success. So I want to get into this because I, I think there's a little bit of a read through here. Uh, it's looking at earnings for Q1. And we talk about like uh, all of the benefits that we think are coming as a result of AI uh, in profitability, like we're, we're not starting from a terrible place. One of the biggest takeaways from Q1 earnings season, which is wrapping up now, uh, it's pretty much done is that, you know, corporations, we've talked about this. Corporations are just amazing at finding ways to maintain margins and build on profitability. So this comes from Savita Subramanian at bank of America. They, this morning, they raised 2023 earnings estimates to $215 from 200 yeah. following the strong Q. So this is, this is Savita. Uh, once again, showed corporate America's ability to preserve margins while a potential recession in the second half, which is their house view could put some pressure on the consensus second half earnings recovery. We believe the downside risk will be mitigated given companies cost cuts. Um, and then FX becomes a, a tailwind in the second half. Um, so they're actually now raising earnings estimates. We spent the first four or five months of this year talking about earnings have to come down, earnings have to come down. Uh, and now it's more like, hey, maybe not necessarily. Um, Bank of America, for what it's worth, is also saying 2024 estimates are now at $235 a share, which would be year-over-year growth of about 9%. So we still haven't had the recession yet, but we're already in an earnings recovery. Well, well getting back to the NVIDIA thing, they're – revenue went from whatever it was a quarter ago. I mean, just incredible growth, $6 billion. I thought we were in a tech recession. Where's all this spending coming from? I mean, there's still tons of money on the sidelines. What do you mean? There's dry powder, I think, in venture. There's a lot of money that could pulled out of the market and out of crypto and out of other places that is still looking for places to be. I think in terms of absorbing all of that liquidity that started 15 years ago, we haven't done that Completely well, yet. first of all, if, if Microsoft and Amazon and Google are going to go to war with each other <laughs> uh, and they have to buy chips from NVIDIA to wage that war, they all have plenty of money. And NVIDIA booking $11 billion in revenue next quarter, it sounds like a lot of money, but not if that money is coming from Microsoft. And, and so that's, a, you know, people forget you're not buying the economy when you buy the stock market. You're also not even buying enterprise spending you're, you're buying corporate America's profits. Yeah, and I think there's, I haven't analyzed this. I'm just speculating here. That's what we do. But I think show. America in general, there's money flowing in because people in the world don't have anything better to put their money. Okay. On. So there's this other story about CapEx and reshoring. I don't know if, have you looked at this yet? No. Okay. 
Um, but basically, and this is also from B of A, CapEx cycle, fiscal stimulus, productivity gain, uh, following 10 plus years of underinvestment in the U.S., CapEx is mandatory. They think 14% uh, 14% year over year in first quarter. Um, $600 billion worth of mega projects that are a billion plus in size each have been announced since January 2021, which is triple the typical run rate. Um, so this this is like this reshoring story where Intel is going to make chips in Ohio mm -hmm. rather than in Taiwan, yeah. et cetera. There's something, there's something real there. Yeah, it's happening. I mean, it, it, it supports industrial real estate. Uh, it supports job creation. Yeah. And it, at least for the federal level, it looks like the president kind of toned down the kind of the, the China decoupling story. Yeah. It's, uh, not a, it's not a win for him. To, to, yeah, to, but, but, but still, like these things are happening. I think a lot of companies, corporations themselves, they realize that they've, they've maybe stretched their uh, supply chains a little uh, too far and wide and they want to have more control and more certainty. Um, let's, so, let's, let's do these charts, John. So this is, this is coming out of the earnings. So this is, uh, Q1 earnings was a 5% beat, which is double the typical beat. Um, so you would say like, okay, this is the earnings recession, like <laughs> not so <laughs> terrible. Uh, next chart, every sector beat, uh, earnings except utilities. So these are the revisions since the start of April. Materials, consumer discretionary, industrials, like all, like all of this is mid to mid single digits to yeah. uh, high double digits. Uh, next one, this is when they stopped cutting earnings estimates. So consensus uh, consensus earnings per share stopped falling after a thirteen percent decline since the peak in June of twenty twenty two. So I don't know if it's over, but pretty mild as you know drops in earnings go. I think uh, last one, this is guidance ratio. So this is like what S&P 500 companies are telling the street. And this one uh, is now uh, yeah, 1.2 like times a the highest recovery. level. Um, highest level since 2021. Yeah. Um, so I thought I thought if you tell me like the bear case for 2023 is earnings, which I think most people said that was uh, so far not so, right? What's the it big did, takeaway from did that? did not come to fruition. Did, it, didn't, it didn't play out that way. No. So people were expecting a combination of multiples, multiple compression with, with earnings dropping. That is, that is, that was the mega bear case. And neither of those things really happened. We got that multiple compression last year and earnings are okay. They're down what, like five, 6%. Not so bad. To, to me, this encapsulates the whole story of the last maybe 20 years, like terrible, crazy monetary experiment going on, trying to mess everything up. And American business, especially tech, just coming up with increasingly incredible they just, things. They find a way. They just find a way. Well, yeah. we're, we're trying so. to slow the economy, and the Fed is not succeeding. Uh, the four biggest economies, if you look at global PMI, is accelerating. So uh, I don't know what are the tools they have to slow down the economy, but it's it's not happening yet. Yeah. What's this Binance story? Oh, boy. Oh, Binance. What now? All right. So here's what Binance is currently dealing with. Um they are facing civil charges from the CFTC of willful evasion of U.S. commodity laws. Is that bad? They are under investigation by the Justice Department for suspected money laundering and sanction violations. And Reuters had uh, a big investigation. Let me just read the lead. The world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance, commingled customer funds with company revenue in 2020 and 2021 in breach of U.S. financial rules that require customer money to be kept separate. Now, these are just allegations. Reuters found no evidence that Binance client monies were lost or taken. Um, but yeah, this is not good. Well, and you're 
you're not even supposed to be on the Binance platform if you're in the United States. Right. So just the fact that they're taking customer money, I think it's mo- is it mostly institutions that use Binance in America? It's not a retail business. Well, here. the a, a lot of the, retail business, too, but right, a lot yeah. of the allegations were for the hedge funds. They made it yeah. very easy how to yeah. circumvent our laws. Uh, a person with direct knowledge of Binance's group finances said the sums ran into billions of dollars and commingling happened almost daily in the accounts at the exchange held at U.S. lender Silvergate Bank. Shocking news. Who would uh, have thought? Uh, the F the FTX kid is trying a new defense, which is that actually everything that we were doing was fine until somebody decided to say it wasn't. Like, like he's not saying like I'm sorry. Or mm-hmm. he, this is really interesting. Uh, here, he's this, gonna get away with it. That's what I thought from the beginning. The detective and work by outrageous. Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, what is that? A bakery? What is Sullivan? <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay, uh, which has submitted bills totaling fifty-five million dollars to the bankruptcy court is already proving beneficial to prosecutors. In a January court filing, Sullivan and Cromwell displayed an excerpt from FTX's underlying code base showing a feature that allowed Alameda, which was their hedge fund, mm-hmm. to borrow virtually unlimited amounts of money from the exchange. Uh, how are they going to get away with that? Like a legal maneuver? I can't imagine. Uh, I think, I mean, because it was so known. First, the fact that this guy is not even in jail yet is amazing to me. Yeah. What is he doing? He's got an ankle bracelet and he's hanging yeah, out in his dad's house. Yeah, he's just hanging out. Yeah, something okay. like Paul that. Washington? Even... But he's, no, off he's the, not in Port Washington. He's but he's in, off in the Palo internet. Alto, no? they, they kept him off the internet. I don't it's been know. pretty. It's been pretty quiet. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, money, it's just a complicated. Yeah, exactly. But it's a complicated story, and they're just going to muddle it and muddle it and muddle it, and then it's really hard to find a smoking gun here because yeah, I had this fund and that fund, and nobody told me that I'm not allowed to do that, and the customers agreed, and and whatever, you know. Drawer, so, the internet got excited yesterday. People in crypto up three. Uh, Fred Wilson, one of the best venture yeah. investors said, um, he was speaking about something and he said, I was reminded of that moment yesterday when in our quarterly call with our limited partners at USV, we were asked if the regulatory pressure in Web3 in the US would result in us cutting back our Web3 investing, to which I responded, when they want to shut it down, I say double down. You have any thoughts here? Yeah, first I love it. It's nice to kind of rally the troops a little. Yeah, bullshit Uh, though. But to go back, but to go back to Fred the Wilson's point. not going to jail for Web3. <laughs> oh, for sure. Let's all, let's all relax. And, uh, Wait, hold on. What, is, what are you talking about? Regulatory pressure He's, right he, now on anything that has to do with Web3 is such that everybody is calming down on their investing. And there's no evidence that people are full speed ahead investing in any of this stuff. It's no, really scary. It's really scary when the regulators Wait, you know, can he, decide. Do you, do you think that he's lying? No, but I don't think he's doubling down either. And I don't think the appetite out there exists in an environment where regulators can come and say- but he's telling you this, that his appetite No, he is. said I was reminded of a moment when I said that. I he know. didn't say double down we li- But we, li- we live in a time where they can say, this thing that you did three years ago, we decided it's a security. Right, yeah. Like that's what's going on right now. It may not be going on forever, mm-hmm. But is anybody like really investing at the same pace they were two years no, ago? No, of course not. No, but some okay. are. But some are still investing quite significantly just because they raise a lot of money. They're like investing Andreessen in like startups Wilson. that are doing in crypto Web3 things. Stuff. Yeah, they are. Okay, they're not buying the coins because we have the flows data. No, right, but but they would have told you that they're not really buying coins to begin with. They always but, yeah, said but that. They did. Yeah. Uh, but to me, this just this actually connects more to the macro story, not as a Web three story. Okay. But I think we this is the attitude that we need. I mean, the government is important; they should keep doing what they're doing. It'll be nice if they do it a little better. 
But we need entrepreneurs and investors to to make those crazy bets because that's the only thing that's going to enable the government to continue existing. You think, you think we really need uh, the amount of mental capital that went into blockchain stuff over the last five years? You think that is helpful if it continues? And so, to what end? So let me give you an example from, from something that is currently hot. There was just a leak from some Satya Nadella meeting with their head of R&D. And he told, he told him, how come OpenAI with 250 people, they can come up with this stuff and you can't come up with it here internally at Microsoft. Yeah. But that's the story of our economy. How many people were trying to do what OpenAI is doing for the last 20 years and how much money did it cost? So the 250 people that figured it out, that's a success story, but it wouldn't have happened without all of these crazy experiments. Okay. So crypto is an intensification oh, oh, so of everything a lot else. Of, there's a lot of potential open AIs that didn't work out in order to yeah, produce the one that did. Yeah, and with crypto, we know now some of what we know. But even that story, I don't think, is over yet in terms of the things that are develop, being developed there. Of course, there was a lot of bullshit. And as I said, there's a lot of bullshit in AI as well. And more, people are going to yeah. lose more money there than they did in crypto. And yet, they're trying to build tools, at least those of them who are really honest and excited about it, that I think are very, very important for our future. Again, in terms of... Why are they in terms of our, our identity? Why are they important for our future? Because it's about how can you have an identity online? How can you verify the authenticity of things? How can you build business models that allow more people to benefit from these superstar effects and from these crazy kind of rallies so that everyone so people could basically make money just by and doing what they're doing online? And blockchain is essential for that or it's one possible solution? It's one possible solution. Okay. It's where all the experiments we're going through. I think a lot of those experiments are very significant and they're, they're only going to come become more important over time. And that's what I thought then. That's what I think now. Uh, was there a lot of silliness going on? For sure. And, and also a lot of us knew it in real time as well. It's not like everyone yeah. was kind of starry-eyed. There was a lot of really stupid stuff uh, going on. you think on. the decks have been cleared of most of the scammers and no. the, the pretenders? <laughs> there's still an, uh, there's still, there's still plenty. Some, yeah. Because I could picture a scenario where all of a sudden there's like a real-world blockchain use case mm -hmm. and there's not 500 people hyping nonsense on Twitter. I don't think the idea of, of real digital money is like that outlandish. Like despite yeah. a lot, like if you just strip it down to something just as basic as that. And, and anything that happened over the last few years just reinforced the need for that in terms of monetary policy, in terms of what happened in Russia, in terms of what happened in Canada. We need that control. And, and like you said, you were talking before about kings and the feudal system. We, yeah. we have no idea what's coming. And this is the infrastructure for the future. Fair. Or at least an experiment. Let's do social networks. Um, overall, like the Twitter spaces thing that went on this week, I don't I didn't think it was that big a deal. I think the media loves it. So the, the media doesn't like when somebody comes along and is able to disintermediate and, for example, have a president, yeah. have a presidential candidate announce on Twitter. That's got to be infuriating for like CNN. And all right, so- uh, I was really proud of myself that I didn't see any of that on Twitter. It means that my filters and muted words. And I don't see any of it. I just are, see. It. I saw it on the news. Really well. So the news was taking a huge amount. The news, cable news, was taking a tremendous amount of delight in the fact that there was a technical glitch mm -hmm. on Twitter that led to like twenty minutes of hang on, hang on, we're almost ready, we're almost yeah. ready. Big fucking deal. Like so. All right, maybe the next presidential candidate will not choose a Twitter Spaces as the forum to, but like, there's just so much shade and Freud from the traditional gatekeepers yeah. for, and I'm not an Elon stan. Um, Me neither. I don't know. I just feel like social networking and social media is dying. And now there's like 20 new ones coming along. None of them seem to catch 
the, the public's imagination for more than a day or two? I mean, I mean, people spend more time in private chats, you know, on WhatsApp, on, on Discord. Yeah. Uh, spend more time and now spend more money. And also a lot of AI stuff is happening there or directly integrated into Discord, which is kind of fun. Uh, we might have new concepts there as well, just like TikTok Emerge, but it's not exactly a social network anymore. Yeah. It's more like a content kind of... Well, it's not a t- it's not text-based. Yeah. So and the- you're not really connecting with people, you're just watching whatever comes in front of your screen. Okay. If um, inst- if Instagram does a- their own version of Twitter, which looks like it's happening, yeah. um, that... I think has the potential to put an end to Twitter. I I don't think so. I mean, it has so? the potential to cause pain to Twitter, but yeah. Twitter for I think for the the tech and finance kind of intelligentsia. But they're all on Inst- they're is. all on Instagram too. So if not there's a text them. version, I'm, I'm not. Okay, but, but Twitter's uh, still the news center. Yeah, news capital of the world. But a lot of the other crap like sports and entertainment might move to Instagram, which is fine with me, but it may be bad for business for Elon. Okay. Um, we're going to go into favorites, but I wanted to ask you, did you have fun on the show today? I did. All right. I thought you were, I thought you were, uh, the perfect guest for this week and you did not disappoint. Um, so how, so how many shares of NVIDIA are you going to sell, uh, tomorrow when the market opens? (laughs) Zero. Okay. I might, I might, I might have to sell a little. Uh, part of me thinks that this has to end at 500. Maybe. I'm making that up though. There are price targets above 500 right now. Be- because of my, the, the allocation, yeah. the size of my overall position there is still small. Okay. It's become like 4% of my portfolio, of my stock portfolio now. Yeah. Also, so, also is it a bigger risk, like psychologically, if you do sell? Yeah, I don't. And then, and then it's like a $5 trillion market cap. It becomes the biggest company in the world, and you're like, I knew it had the potential. The thing is, I started with such a small position, and I, that's the, my main regret. Why didn't I buy like you know, oh, like I would Everybody. buy everything? That's else. everyone. No, but most tech stocks that I buy, I usually buy bigger positions to begin with. But this one was kind of like, oh, let's just buy a little, and then it started going up. So I bought a little more, but I said, let's wait for something for an entry point. Right. So now I really like. I'm not going to sell. I'm just if I lose all of it, that's fine. But uh, okay. Well, yeah. I'm not selling either. I'm just kidding. I, I'm not even contemplating. Not investment it. advice. I ju- you know what? <laughs> because I said to myself, "Could I live with it if it went back to 300?" Yes. Yeah. I could totally. I could totally live with. It. I don't think it will. But if it did, I don't think I'd be like suicidal over it. Yeah. So uh, I'm. I'm gonna let it ride as well. Um, we do favorites at the end of the show. Wait, and did he- you just say back to 300? You mean like where it was yesterday afternoon? Yeah. I'm saying <laughs> no. If this whole run got erased in the next week, yeah, I'd be like, shit. I should have sold some, but not seriously. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. Uh, favorites, any books, any shows, any movies? What would you recommend that the audience check out that maybe they don't know about? Ooh, so a good book that I returned to recently is called Linked. It's about network science. It's kind of like a, a Hungarian-American professor. Uh, and it's kind of about the early internet, but I think there's a lot of insights there that are very, very relevant to How to many books? We how do. many books do you read a month? I don't know. I read a bunch in parallel. Okay. So probably in a year, I go through, I don't know, 150 books, but I don't read all of them. What are you mostly reading about? History, tech, some literature. Yeah. I kind of, I I don't use book, I don't read books of the same kind at the same time. So I usually read one of each. I do the same thing. I read like a fiction book and then like usually a biography. And because I'm reading to it once, I never finish either. So it's a really great system I have. No, me too. And, I, I'm, and I'm fine. Like, I'm very kind to myself on that front. Like, you know, if a book doesn't grab me, I don't uh, feel guilty about who leaving to, it who or told coming me, back to it. Who is it that was saying, like, I'll put a book down after after one sitting if I don't like it? Morgan, Morgan was saying that, right? Patrick? Or maybe Patrick. Oh, yeah. O'Shaughnessy? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I was unable to do that until five years ago. 
Now it's I don't even think twice about it's it. Your, your it's important. It's important though. And now that I'm writing a book, I also like every day I go through a few books that I kind of like really go through really quickly or digitally just to find what I need. So also I go through a lot of them. Uh, when does it, when does this book come out? So I'm I'm serializing it. So premium subscribers of my newsletter actually get a few pages every week oh, okay. already. Yeah, uh, it'll be done. I don't know in a few months. It's kind of like a third. A third way, third of the way there. Okay. Uh, so maybe in four it's or five months. It's interesting to release the early part of a yeah. book before you finish the whole thing. Because it, it changes. And, you know, with this AI stuff, for example, it's a book about the future of work, essentially. And a yeah. lot of stuff changed. So now I can kind of change it. Second, as a business model, it makes more sense because instead of selling a book through a publisher and getting $3 per copy in two years, I'm monetizing it right now with a monthly subscription that, that gives yeah. other things as well. You know, you know who sold his books like that? Charles Dickens. Right. Did, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, a lot of authors were serializing their work in yeah, the newspapers. Yeah, he, he sold it to a newspaper, yeah. and people would buy the newspaper for the latest chapter. Yeah. And I don't know how long he dragged it out over. I think, like, uh, A Christmas Carol was sold that way. No, but oh, even uh, David Copperfield. Even David Copperfield. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming back to that. And uh, we are. So, so yeah, so I read a lot of, I go through a lot of books. Very cool, very cool. Um, Mike, you got a favorite for us? Uh, I don't because my schedule has been pretty— Oh, you have Sam Zell on here. Well, okay. Um, I've, right. been, I've just been watching Succession, Dave, and the NBA. So that's there's not yeah, much yeah. room for other shit. But I, I did listen. I did listen to Sam with Meb, Sam Zell with Meb. There was so much, uh, so many good nuggets in there. And yeah, probably was the last thing, the last public-facing thing that he did. It was like an hour, and it was five weeks ago. So Sam Zell and Meb's podcast was brilliant. Yeah, and his book, I think it's called Am I Being Too Subtle? Sam Zell's book. I never read fun. that one. You yeah. read that? Yeah. You must it's like have. real estate deals and stuff, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. also a personal story. It's really fun. You must have read that. Uh, yeah. All right, I have two. One is uh, music, Seven Psalms, which is uh, Paul Simon, who is now 81 years old. Wow. And uh, he did this really interesting thing. He claims that the, these songs were coming to him in his sleep and waking him up at three o'clock in the morning and he would jump out of bed and just write the words down that were coming to him in his dreams. And he like retired from touring. He's like, you know. I know, I've been to his last show like three times already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw one of the years. last ones at Forest Hills. Not Forest, uh, yeah, me, Forest me Hills. Me too, but then yeah. I saw another one in Madison Square Garden. And that's like where, he, that's like where he's from and yeah, he was Corona. super like not cool to the crowd. He was like not very gracious. Or I think he's like just, he's done with that part of it. Yeah. I think he's there done was, with there was that. No, there was nothing sentimental that mm -hmm. he projected about it. Like, thank you for everything. I'm home. Been yeah. Abroad. There yeah, was I, w I was, I, I wasn't that show. I saw him in Israel. I saw him in I've Beijing. seen him a bunch of times with Garfunkel like at Madison Square. Mm -hmm. I've seen some like shows where they were like really excited to be back together. So he's, I mean, 81 it's like, you know, obviously not going to go on a tour um, unless, like, you really want to punish your, your, your body mm -hmm. and your mind. Um, so he puts this thing out. It's 33 minutes. It's one track, but it's seven songs comprising the one track. And you could hear the difference when one song ends. But it's not like an album with seven tracks. And it's interesting because the whole streaming concept is the other way. Like, when your favorite new artist puts out an album now on Spotify— it has 50 songs on it mm -hmm. because they're gaming the algorithm. The more songs, the more chances there are for likes, which increases your... So he went the other way. He That's did seven Ponzi's songs as one. About. Yeah. yeah. Um, the writer from the New York Times... So the, the theme of the, the material is like, I'm probably dying soon. And after all this time, do I believe that there is an afterlife or not? 
So like, do I believe in God or, or do I not? And he doesn't really resolve it, but, uh, it's like not something that you listen to while you mow the lawn. Like, I think if you're into, if you're into this kind of thing, you sit down and you like listen well, to like it. Mushrooms. Yeah. Mushrooms <laughs> for sure. Um, but the writer from the New York times pointed out David Bowie did this. He put out an album called black star. Leonard Cohen did this. Uh, the album was called you want it darker. And they're both Paul Simon's era. Yeah. Uh, they both died within days of those albums being released, almost as though they knew it was coming and they had to get this last thing out. So let's hope that's not the case, obviously, um, with Paul Simon. But I listened to it a couple times. It's, there's a there's a lot of shit going on there. Uh, we'll just put it that way. The other thing is Daniel Eck on the Acquired podcast. You listen to Acquired? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, that was a good episode. I think it's like the highest quality business podcast. He's great, yeah. He's fantastic, right? So Daniel Eck did an hour and a half with those guys. They flew to Stockholm to oh, do it wow. at Spotify. And they spent about an hour of the – Duncan, did you listen to it yet? I haven't had a chance. I assigned it to you. Though. I don't, I don't okay. I'm, It's on my list. <laughs> they did a, about an hour just on podcasting and um, where that business is going. And it's just really fascinating talking about network effects and all these things. So highly recommend listening to the CEO of Spotify, Daniel Eck, on the Acquired podcast which I listen to on Apple Podcasts, of course. Wait, I, 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 so one of the cool things about Spotify is like you can listen and or watch the video. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I like the option because if you're walking, obviously you're not going to hold your phone up. Yeah. But if you're like, if you stop midway and you want to pick it back up and you're on the train, you can watch it. Yeah, no, there's, a, and they're, I think it's, I think they are um, unappreciated for how much more they're doing for podcasts as an art form. Than any other platform. Oh, for sure, yeah. They're they're going deep on it because it's, it's much more profitable for them than uh, you know paying the royalties to the. They really no, are paying royalties yeah. to the. By the way, if you're listening to this on Spotify, labels, <laughs> like and subscribe. All right, I, got on on that note on Spotify. I actually have two reviews to read. Um, we have a question and answer feature on Spotify now. Uh -huh. Ooh. So if you're listening on there, you can answer the question. What did you think about this episode? That's the default. And so uh, MCJH Robinson said, another great discussion to perambulate to. Uh, I like I, it. That means walking. I Googled it. Yes. Um, and then e EMC <laughs> said, uh, most informative podcast I've listened to all week. Keep up the great content. Very cool. Shout out to nice all work, of our guys. Spotify listeners. We appreciate you. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening this week. Thanks to our very special guest, Drawer Peleg. Let's tell people where they could follow you. So you're on Twitter. What's your handle? At D-R-O-R-P-O-L-E-G. Okay. Or my website, drawerpoleg.com or hypefree.com, which is my course. Yeah. If you want to check out uh, Drawer's course, it's hypefree.com. And that's basically you walking people through what they need to know about AI. Seems like something that everyone should check out. I agree. Oh, you're the man. Thank you so much for coming by. We appreciated having you. Thanks to all our listeners, Duncan, John, Sean, Nicole, Rob. Great job behind the scenes this week. We'll see you all next week. Compound and Friends out. Boom. So that was like the dress rehearsal. Um, <laughs> we're going to all get some water and just kind of regroup. You feel you ready? <laughs> sure, thank you. Appreciate it.